Well, when, in preparing for tonight, I remember when we first got the schedule, teaching schedule from Jacob uh, for what he wanted to accomplish uh, with this semester, and it was actually like twice as long. Um, and we we're like, could we try to make it one semester? And I kind of regret it. <laughs> um, covering 300 years, especially uh, this 300 years, to me is a daunting task. So I uh, elected to just provide you some points there uh, with some emphases um, already highlighted rather than going through the time of uh, spelling some words and all of that to try to get through the the main areas uh, that were pertinent um, and to see if I could do that in an efficient way and hopefully uh, not a super boring one. Um, but this was like the one uh, portion that I really wanted to teach on this semester. This is why I ch- chose to do the, the earlier stuff regarding the scriptures to get to this uh, topic of uh, scripture and authority in the era uh, eras preceding ours and our time as well, because I think it's uh, one of the most important for engaging the culture today, because we are certainly in a crisis of authority. Um, and our uh, sources of authority, specifically the scriptures, um, these thoughts uh, underwent the most revision during the, that period between 1700 to 2000. Um, and so that's what I hope to focus on tonight is uh, some of the developments related to biblical inspiration, authority, and interpretation during the past 300 years. Uh, so last week, Jacob had you draw like these pyramids of uh, basically their um, assumptions beginning with metaphysics that would lead uh, to epistemology than to ethics. And then he described how the Enlightenment period um, flipped the bottom foundation to epistemology to arrive at metaphysics and then ethics. And what we see through the next couple hundred years is the outworking of that change as well as the pushback and attempts to mediate um, that shift so we have um, the 18th century, which is referred to often as the age of reason or enlightenment, um, where we have that new philosophical assumption, um, which is dramatically influ- influencing uh, much of the transatlantic world, especially uh, intellectually. And um, though they, it dates around the 17th century, there really isn't like a single time where it occurred. Uh, it was a a general bit of time, uh, a couple of different ebbs and flows here or there, and there's not really great consensus on the exact beginning um, or origins of the Enlightenment. It's kind of an organic thing happening. Um, but like Jacob mentioned a little bit before last week, uh, not all theologians saw the Enlightenment um, as in direct opposition to faith, and uh, they did include or use some of the tools and implement some of the things that were becoming popular at the time uh, within the Christian faith. However, still, it is true that the Enlightenment um, uh, 
was largely was largely set in opposition, where they're setting reason in opposition to faith. So that's certainly quite a, con- a contrast between uh, like Augustine's commitment to faith seeking understanding. It was uh, understanding seeking faith. Um, this is where we begin to see um, a lot more deism pop up in England as well as here in America. Uh, much of the founding fathers, uh, in I'll say, uh, affected by uh, this this era of thinking, um, and the the view of the scriptures uh, continually being reevaluated under the new assumptions, or uh, yeah, I'll just say new assumptions, put it that way. Um, but I would say that uh, the transition or like the um the the enlightenment uh some of the uh, some thinkers reacted to the enlightenment um uh, most notably um being the, re- the proponents of romanticism um they uh came around in the 18th century so we're having the 17th century um with um the enlightenment coming along and then kind of giving birth to the romanticism of the time. And uh, these guys are dealing with the same assumptions of the Enlightenment, but they are pretty unhappy with uh, the state of the rationalism of the Enlightenment. They find it pretty dour. And so they come along uh, from this uh, understanding of trying to strictly reason towards things of faith and say the only way we can evaluate them is through our feelings and emotions over that of the rational autonomy of uh, the, the Enlightenment thinkers. And so for them, um, basically what we have is they are emphasizing then the subjective elements of religion over objective truth claims. And so you almost have these, these two uh, groups in opposition where we've said, uh, we don't have a foundational, a consistent foundational point from which to reason towards uh, things that we know and uh, what, how our ethics should be. Um, therefore, the only th- way that we can know anything is how we feel or uh, because we can't reason to it versus the only way we can know things is how we reason to it. So if we can't reason to it reasonably, then we can't know it. Or if we can't feel it, then we can't know it. So obviously that will put us in uh, uh, some sticky situations trying to discern what even is uh, coming up. Um, but during the, the pre-modern era, then we have the development of what's called the historical critical method, um, where uh, theologians practiced a variety of strategies of biblical interpretation, um, a number of which you may have heard about in previous weeks here. And what these approaches all had in common uh, was a belief that the Bible is God's inspired written word, and as such, Scripture is authoritative and trustworthy, reflecting on God's character. Um, This changed, however, with the advent of modernity and uh, its revisionist views of the Bible. So many theologians now uh, believe the Bible to be a thoroughly human book during this time, and that it should be interpreted like any other book, and its historical and scientific truthfulness uh, should not be assumed. So that's, again, that foundational uh, presupposition 
being changed, that it is in fact likely untruthful and should be reevaluated based off that assumption. So modern assumptions about the doctrine of Scripture gave rise to this historical critical method, sometimes uh, called higher criticism. You may have heard that phrase, higher criticism. But um, more, more uh, succinctly, I suppose, the historical critical method focused more on the historical circumstances that ostensibly gave rise to the biblical text rather than the content of the text itself. Uh, so that's history and later science um, rather than the text of Scripture or church tradition functioned as the determinative factor in biblical uh, interpretation. So that is what we'll be dealing with quite a bit through that early period following the Enlightenment is whatever the historical context is from which a scriptural text derived uh, carries more weight than what the text says um, under this view. So that obviously went hand in hand well with the Enlightenment emphasis on human autonomy, um, championing individual conclusions uh, over like communal or church interpretations. Um, for modern critical interpreters, um, the connection between uh, reflection and theology was severed at that point, or at least stretched uh, greatly. Those beliefs, would they consider themselves Christian? Or I mean, how would they label themselves? Yeah, so we'll, we're gonna we'll get there uh, with a couple of these guys. So some would say no, some would say yes, and many times they're trying to basically say um, they're trying to fix the problem. So just give it a few minutes and we'll get there, right? So a second result of the historical critical method. Uh, was the documentary hypothesis, which is identified with the German scholar Julius Wellhausen. Man, do we ever have to deal with that in Old Testament survey? And uh, I have thoughts about that guy. But uh, proponents of, of this view, so this is primarily relating to the Old Testament, rejected the primary mosaic authorship and unified message of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, and argued instead that the canonical biblical material uh, represented four different sources that were edited and combined over a period of about three centuries. Um, So what we have here is uh, essentially beginning with that. We're not assuming that this is true. Um, We're trying to discern what is the historical situation from which this text arrived and let that be the determinant of uh, the value of the text rather than the content of that text. Um, uh, along the same uh, time period, we have the evolutionary theory being popularized by, by Darwin, uh, which served to reinforce uh, the historical critical method in the mind of many scholars. And with this theory in mind, um, critical scholars now had further reason to doubt any supernaturalist biblical accounts of creation. So you have these guys coming along with Let's uh, evaluate the beginning with uh, heavy skepticism as well as the beginning of a more naturalist uh, epistemology. Um, So we have this beginning to come forth, and then obviously there are going to be um, reactions, splits, splinterings, trying to deal with this information. And um, in 
this is where we get into the fundamentalist and modernist controversies. So by the turn of the 20th century, Protestant theologians uh, are divided between traditionalists and uh, progressives and some mediating theologians who tried to find a middle way. So now they're trying to splinter and be like, how do we make sense of any of this? If we accept uh, this methodology or accept the assumptions of it, how do we reconcile any of these things? Um, so the traditionalists took on the name fundamentalists, probably a term we're very familiar with now, um, following the publication of a 12-volume series of pamphlets called uh, The Fundamentals, A Testimony to Truth. Um, and though they were divided by denominational differences um, and classical debates over many of the things we still argue about today, election, baptism, things of that nature, they saw themselves um, kind of loosely knit together um, but united on this, uh, in opposition to uh, this criticism. Um, in their view, most fundamentalists argued that every word of the original manuscripts was inspired by God, known as verbal plenary inspiration, and that scripture, when rightly interpreted, was fully trustworthy even in matters of history and science, also known as biblical inerrancy. Um, in these views, they um, drew on insights from post-Reformation theologians, um, as well as uh, 19th century theologians, such as Charles Hodge and, uh, and others. Um, I'm very fond of Charles Hodge, mainly because uh, his full uh, uh, works of theology were available for free in college. So I used it as a resource constantly in papers on... Uh, What's the name of that site? Uh, Christian Classics Ecclesiastical Library dot com. They have a bunch of public domain PDF versions of books of that nature. Um, side note: history on that for me. But um, so from uh, Hodge uh, and uh, guys like, uh, like his predecessor um, comes uh, the. Uh, I want to get there in a minute, but from them, we'll eventually get to the Princeton Theological Seminary and the Princeton School. Um, but in contrast to the fundamentalists like those guys, uh, we have the modernists fully embracing the critical views of Scripture. And in many cases, this led to a rejection of biblical miracles, um, redefining human sin and the atonement and downplaying of salvation through Christ alone. Um, the, the father of theological modernism was Friedrich Schleiermacher, um, who put forward a, the critical romantic synthesis. I was talking about these romantic guys trying to, uh, come through and give, I would say, some attractiveness to the worldview of, of critical theory, um, by getting some emotion in there. Um, but the synthesis of the Christian faith, um, that, he uh, intended to defend the validity of Christianity against modern skepticism. Um, that seems like nearly contradictory to me, but he tried. Um, but he did this in his influential book on Christian faith, in which he argued that reflection on the human experience of dependence on God, rather than appeal to God's revelation in Scripture, was the heart of theological inquiry. Um, I think you hear the ghosts of this, and Bible studies all around when people will read a scripture and then say, what does this mean to you? Um, I get a little chills down my spine when that happens. Because uh, how often is it edifying? 
Depends on the wisdom in the room, I suppose. <laughs> but um, we continue on with that, uh, and we have a couple of more modernist guys moving us toward the post-war era, um, where we have many more Protestant don- denominations splitting over debates between fundamentalists and modernists. Um, in uh, most cases, modernists and any of the, the middle ground guys who had allied with them would ultimately maintain control of the denominations. And so through the early 1900s, we have a significant wave of, uh, I'd say, uh, progressive-leaning, left-leaning theological leadership um, in many uh, Christian denominations in America. Um, But uh, post-war evangelicals, uh, what we have is... um, uh, still uh, verbal plenary inspiration and biblical inerrancy still remaining uh, big pillars of fundamentalism, especially among scholars and educated ministers. So we have these two uh, more clearly defined groups continuing into the post-war era. And then we have what is called neo-orthodoxy. So I think this is the closest um, example we'll get to about your question in my mind, Tom. Um, where we're getting really close to guys wanting to hold to uh, uh, Christian doctrinal distinctives while maintaining uh, a more skeptical view of the origin of the Scriptures themselves. And we'll see how some of that plays out. So um, we have uh, so modernists controlling um, mainline Protestantism in North America and most of the state churches in Europe. And many continue to advance liberal views of Scripture. Um, guys like uh, Bultmann, who argued for demythologizing the Bible in favor of uh, an ethical gospel that is compatible with modern assumptions. You can see this reasoning begin to take place, trying to uh, grasp with whatever straws they can uh, the Christian faith uh, from this. And uh, we have... Even broader versions of the modernist uh, guys forming um, ecumenical councils um, that are trending toward away from doctrinal distinctiveness, and uh, they're diminishing evangelism uh, in missionary in the missionary task, and uh, this would eventually lead to uh, religious pluralism among liberal theologians in later decades in the 20th century. Um, however. Um, uh, following World War I, some theologians broke with modernism and adva- advanced a like mediating theology that became called neo-orthodoxy. And uh, a couple of notable names, Emil Brunner, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the brothers Reinhold, these are all guys in neo-orthodoxy. But the most famous uh, neo-orthodox theologian was Karl Barth, and he's probably the most influential theologian of that century. Um, so unlike the modernists, um, the neo-Orthodox movement, they sought to synthesize these elements of classical orthodoxy with modern critical scholarship. Um, and much like many movements, uh, they were never tr- truly a unified mov- movement, um, and few scholars used that term to describe themselves, but in retrospect, uh, a close enough umbrella. Um, 
So uh, despite um, their embracing the historical critical methodology and being like more cautious towards uh, the miracles uh, described in Scripture, they did take the text more seriously um, than the higher criticism. And so they were, um, although not identifying Scripture as the written inerrant words of God, uh, most neo-Orthodox theologians believe the Scriptures was inspired by God, and they valued the role of Scripture in preaching and theological inquiry. Um, I didn't include it on your sheet, but briefly, there were some Roman Catholic responses, mainly um, in uh, Vatican I. Um, they roundly rejected historical uh, higher criticism and uh, stated that the reaffirmed uh, canonical uh, scripture, including the Apocrypha, as divine revelation. And then 100 years later, they um, engaged with it more fully uh, in the modern culture, um, basically stating, uh, elevating slightly the patristics, the, the early church fathers' writings, um, in, in an attempt to, to ward off the ills that they saw in that. But uh, still moving toward to uh, post-war, in the early years of the 20th century, um, the terms evangelical and fundamentalist um, communicated a significant amount of overlap in beliefs. Um, in the years following World War I, uh, conservative Protestants in America, and to a lesser degree in Britain, um, divided into two trajectories from there, and where we'll have uh, those who continue to call themselves fundamentalists would emphasize uh, separation from sinful culture and often from other conservative Protestants with whom they shared disagreements with over theology and practice. Um, that might be closer to what, I don't know what your connotation of fundamentalist is, but that's normally the connotation that uh, I'm familiar with. Is uh, They believe the scriptures and probably in some cases uh, and some some good and some bad uh, will decry uh, practices even from other believers. Um, they also emphasized evangelism more uh, than cultural engagement and tended to prefer Bible colleges rather than liberal arts and seminaries. Um, but uh, in regard to this discussion mainly, they continued to affirm verbal plenary inspiration and biblical inerrancy. Um, in the 60s, uh, most fundamentalists believed that the Textus Receptus uh, which was uh, published by Erasmus, was the most faithful collection of biblical manuscripts. And this is the early roots of King James onlyism, where these guys will say that's the only inspired uh, text and that any other English version that's not a derivative of that um, is inherently worse. Uh, or <laughs> the joke I always heard from the NIV is the nearly inspired version. Um, uh, things of that nature begin to come out of that. Um, uh, let's see, yeah. So the, the slight splintering still will then be with post-war evangelicals from the fundamentalists is that they agreed with the fundamentalists concerning the inspiration and truthfulness of Scripture, uh, but they were far more open to critical editions of the biblical manuscripts and the modern Bible translations based on them. And that's something we're very familiar with today. So any of the, even the NKJV, uh, has included some of these insights now. Um, 
So you still get some of the King James only guys being like, that's bad. Some of them are like, it's still good because it's based off Texas Receptus mainly. But uh, modern versions of the English Bible, I think, are better than we've ever had them because of the uh, proliferation of the manuscripts we have, the ability to to know without a shadow of doubt what the text says. Um, uh, Let me skip down a little bit here. uh, By the 60s... um, Evangelicals uh, began to increasingly debate the doctrine of Scripture, and some evangelical theologians adopted a dynamic view of inspiration, wherein um, God inspired biblical themes, but not necessarily the words of Scripture themselves. And a growing number of them rejected biblical inerrancy, preferring the term infallibility, which they apply uh, uh, primarily to, um, I think, things of like, faith so salvation morality ministry rather than historical and scientific matters that the scriptures speak of um so we have uh let's get into the the biblical interpretation stuff for a moment so we have the 20th century uh we're witnessing ongoing debates about biblical hermeneutics the science of biblical interpretation and based off uh, their belief in verbal plenary inspiration and biblical inerrancy, most conservative Protestants championed the grammatical historical method, uh, which composed, uh, focused on detailed study of the biblical text to the historical critical method preferred by modernists and later liberals. So um, uh, resonating with the insights of secular literary critic uh, Edie Hirsch, uh, evangelical scholars emphasized the authority of authorial intent, uh, though evangelicals expanded this concept to account for the dual divine human authorship of biblical texts. So this is something you'd be very familiar with uh, here, with how we attempt to engage with the scriptural material, is uh, dealing with um, the grammatical historical text method, trying to account for both uh, God's use of the personalities of the biblical authors as well as what his intention was in inspiring them to write in the way in which they did. Um, by the later years of the 20th century, scholars across the theological spectrum um, saw a renewed interest in pre-modern approaches to biblical interpretation. Um, so we're starting to see a little bit of, well, what was it like before historical critical method? Uh, what, what were those guys doing and um, becoming more and more interested in that and pulling this back out so you get a lot more typology and uh, some allegory, notable allegories of Song of Solomon and things of that nature coming out of this time. Um, what we have then, uh, let's get to the case studies uh, with what the time we have left. So first case study will be the Princeton tradition. So as I mentioned before, uh, this is where Charles Hodge comes into play. But uh, Princeton Theological Seminary uh, was founded by Archibald Alexander, and he's considered to be the father of the Princeton tradition. Um, And for more than a century, Princeton represented a bastion of conservative Calvinist orthodoxy, um, whose influence extended well beyond the confines of Presbyterianism. Um, Certainly not that anymore. Alexander defended um, a traditionalist Protestant understanding of biblical inspiration and authority, and his protege, uh, Charles Hodge, 
uh, promulgated this view of Scripture um, in his influential three-volume work, Systematic Theology, which I referenced before, <laughs> um, and in his writings against Darwinism. And obviously he was a big fan of Archibald Alexander because he named his son Archibald Alexander Hodge, um, who also wrote numerous volumes on the doctrine of Scripture. So like father, like son, in verbal plenary inspiration and inerrancy. Um, we have a continuance of the Princeton tradition into the 20th century, um, where there's uh, numerous essays on biblical inspiration and authority, um, and continuing on. But the, the main idea that you'll pull from the Princeton tradition is their commitment to verbally, uh, verbal plenary inspiration. And it means to the letter, it's inspired and inerrant without error. So, um, continuing on to Barthianism, I'm moving really quick and we can come back to these if you want. Karl Barth, as mentioned before, um, widely considered the most influential theologian of the 20th century. Um, though he was educated in the context of German liberalism, uh, like Wellhausen uh, mentioned before, uh, an early pastorate led him to be very skeptical of the modernist view. So rubber meets the road. Um, there's not much hope, <laughs> I would guess. So let's try to account for it. In 1919, uh, he published a commentary on the Romans, uh, which was described, uh, which one fellow theologian claimed fell like a bombshell on the theologian's playground. Um, so in contrast to his, his professors and many contemporaries, uh, Barth affirmed um, the divine inspiration of Scripture and offered robust theological reflections on biblical text. Um, there's some interesting history with him, if you ever want to read about it, with uh, his criticism um, of many of his modern uh, fellow modernist theologians endorsing the Nazi party, um, which could be a good TV show. But in terms of Barth's view of the scriptures and why it was so, um, I think, uh, unique at the time, was he closely identified the word of God uh, with the eternal son of God, who himself was the focus of God's divine revelation. And so scripture is not itself a revelation, but is a written witness to the revelation, Jesus Christ. And so although Barth rejected the idea that the Bible should be uh, considered the word of God, he did believe scripture becomes God's word when the Holy Spirit reveals God to its readers and hearers through human witnesses, even including the biblical authors and preachers. So um, if I add my own comment to that, it's like, why not just believe what it said? And <laughs> it's truthfulness. Um, but you could see why, uh, we'll see, is this gives people, I think, a, a reason to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter then if the, the texts are reliable or not because uh, the truth about God will be revealed through them regardless of if the medium is imperfect. Um, so biblical authority to him is not inherent, but it is existential, so it exists um, as God revealed himself in Jesus Christ through one's engagement with Scripture. And when God works in this way, the Bible continues be, to be an infallible witness, not an infallible work, and therefore not the word of God. 
but that revelation that comes to an individual becomes the word of God. Yeah, so that's definitely clear as mud. Um, but this proved to be very influential, especially in the English-speaking world, and many mainline theologians who were disillusioned um, with liberalism found in Barth basically a path to post-liberal view of Scripture and theology. Um, this allowed for them intellectually um, to hold orthodox affirmations of doctrine, such as the Trinity, the deity of Christ, uh, humanity of Christ, bodily resurrection, human beings as the image of God. Um, nevertheless, still, many liberal theologians rejected Barth's view of Scripture um, and believed that he was too focused on divine inspiration. So even he was a little too religious for them, I suppose. Um, but among evangelicals, uh, progressives who had uh, reservations about the Princetonian uh, view of Scripture believed that the Barthian position offered a better account of how the Bible is both a divine and human book. Um, so uh, I'll keep moving on here. However, Barth's refusal to identify Scripture with God's Word and his rejection of biblical inerrancy left most evangelicals understandably concerned uh, about Barth's view and their implications. And though Barthianism represented an improvement over modernism in many respects, it nevertheless fell short of classical orthodoxy. So then we're getting into um, the, the 60s still, uh, back to the 60s for a moment, to the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Um, a growing number of evangelicals, uh, evangelical theologians uh, were rejecting the Princeton consensus on biblical inspiration and authority, and many were embracing Barthian view and or accommodating their bibliology to theistic evolution, higher criticism, um, or the growing embrace of uh, gender egalitarianism among Protestants. And uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, the longtime flagship evangelical seminary, revised its statement of faith in 1970 to remove the claim that Scripture is, quote, free from error in the whole and in the part. So the move away from inerrancy with that on the part of some evangelicals led to a steady stream of books related to the trustworthiness of Scripture. So if we have a, an errant Scripture, obviously trust trust in what it says and its claims are the first thing that needs to be reevaluated. And so we have many, many works coming out criticizing uh, Fuller Seminary's rejection of inerrancy. Um, we have notably Jack Rogers and Donald McKim responded with uh, a book called The Authority Inspiration and Inspiration of the Bible, a, a Historical Approach. Um, in their work, the authors contended that the historic Christian position was that the Bible's message was infallible and that verbal inerrancy was an overly scholastic minority that had been popularized by the Princeton theologians. So they're still trying to account for, um, trying to deal with how can we say the Bible is true while rejecting that the information in it is in some form. Um, some evangelicals thought that their work on it settled it, and rebuttals continued to follow. Um, but maybe even the, the most noteworthy response uh, to the drift as seen in Fuller um, 
was uh, the formation of the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy in 77. Um, the following year, uh, 200 evangelical scholars from dozens of denominations adopted the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and the Chicago Statement reaffirmed the classical evangelical commitment to verbal plenary inspiration and biblical inerrancy. And so the 13th article of the Chicago Statement um, claims this. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehood, the use of hyperbole in round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material in parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. Um, this clarification suggested that the Bible is without error, but it, is mu- it must be rightly interpreted according to the context of the original authors and the various genres contained in Scripture. So um, the whole claim of uh, being a literalist to the biblical, are you, do you literally interpret the Bible? It's like, yes, in accordance with the context of the original authors and various genres. Um, among conservative evangelicals, the Chicago Statement became the preferred way uh, to frame the doctrine of inerrancy. And uh, though progressive evangelicals continued to reject uh, verbal uh, inerrancy. Um, so the debate goes on, persists, uh, even to the present day that, that we're in, especially among American evangelicals, and uh, whether or not to use the word inerrancy to describe Scripture. Um, and whether or not you decide to use that will actually tell you probably a lot about your beliefs about a host of other debated topics. Um, but fourthly, we have the Southern Baptist inerrancy controversy. And if you ever uh, come around a Southern Baptist seminary now, you're going to learn about this. Um, some of those guys that are currently on there were there for that. Um, evangelical debates about inerrancy um, played out within particular denominations, um, but I want to focus on Baptist because that's where we are. So, and it is the most significant denominational controversy um, um, taking place in the SBC between 1979 and 2000. So, the Southern Baptist Convention had, for a long time, been a conservative denomination. And since 1925, uh, its confessional statement, the Baptist Faith and Message, had claimed that the Bible was, quote, has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth, without any mixture of error for its matter. Uh, nevertheless, in the decades after World War II, post-war, a growing number of Baptist scholars and ministers rejected biblical inerrancy, opting for a version of the Barthian view. Um, in '63. Uh, a revision to the Baptist faith and message uh, drafted in response to a controversy over interpreting Genesis 1 through 11 um, provoked a seminary professor's commentary that tried to synthesize inerrancy with Barthianism. And so by the late 70s, the denomination was divided between conservatives who were in the majority and progressives who dominated the convention's leadership. Um, so though the two groups disagreed on many issues, the conservatives believed that the most important issue they disagreed on was biblical inerrancy. So beginning in 79, uh, Southern Baptist inerrantists, um, 
called the, who called them uh, conservatives and their opponents liberals. They launched a plan to change the convention's leadership and ultimately remake its institutions uh, via the annual elections at the SBC. Um, so what we have is uh, SBC non-inheritists and their allies who called themselves moderates and their opponents fundamentalists. You can see the label games happening again. Uh, proved unsuccessful in preventing a conservative takeover of the convention. So through the 80s and 90s, uh, which if, if you ever find this stuff, it's pretty interesting. Uh, Ashlyn, do you remember what class it was? Um, was it systematic randomly that one of our guys brought out videotape of one of those sessions? Um, yeah, it was like like a 26-year-old Al Mohler and, uh, and Danny Aiken and uh, Paige Patterson dealing with these guys. I'll never forget this. Um, one of those was a particularly very country Kentucky fried colonel of a pastor guy, uh, wearing a full, uh, like baby blue suit was on the floor, had the mic and he basically espoused Barthianism where he said that the conservatives are elevating the written scriptures to the point of being a fourth person of the Godhead. And he said, we don't worship a book, we worship Jesus. This is the, a common contention you'll hear about that time where they say this revelation that we know as Jesus Christ um, is what we worship, not the book itself. And their claim is that any uh, claim to divine inspiration of the written words themselves is elevating the scriptures to, to deity status. And I'll never forget, Dr. Muller very succinctly said, basically, um, you talk about the Christ of faith of which you would know nothing without the scriptures. Um, so it doesn't fix the problem. I think it makes it worse. The scriptures must be inerrant, in my view, for them to be truthful on any matters. And any claim to know anything of Christ and your uh, reference being the scriptures would demand a vetting of the scriptures themselves. And so... Um, yeah, that was a interesting bit of, I think it was just theology class, and he had it. It, was, it seemed like a non sequitur, but it was fun. Um, so this is what's happening during, during this time, where we have, um, yeah, the, throughout the 80s and 90s, conservative and moderate theologians uh, making the case uh, in print, respective viewpoints, um, most notably, if you ever want to look it up, a compilation volume, the, pre- uh, the Proceedings of the Conference on Biblical Inerrancy in 87. Um, but by the early 90s, the SBC had firmly, uh, control, was firmly controlled by conservatives, um, who then revised, again, the Baptist faith and message a third time in 2000. And that's something that we still refer to to this day, the, Baptist, the BFM 2000. Um, it, uh, this revised edition retained the inerrantist language but replaced uh, Barthian concepts of Christ's relationship to the word with more classical evangelical language. So um, we have uh, basically, I think, three things to kind of pull away um, into our time without with this discussion because this still remains a, a hot-button topic 
and it will determine, I think, the trajectory of individuals and churches. But I will say that Scripture, positively, offers a trustworthy word. So though the modern era raised doubts in the minds of many, uh, the consensus of the church for two millennia has been that the Bible represents God's trustworthy written words to humanity. And this is because Scripture attests to its own truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God who inspired it. And the health of the church is intricately connected to the soundness of her doctrine, and the soundness of her doctrine depends on a trustworthy scriptures. Um, but the battle for the Bible is perennial. Uh, we just recounted some modern battles over the Bible, uh, and in particular, divine inspiration and truthfulness. But this is not a modern phenomenon. In fact, the Bible... Um, the battle for the Bible is an ancient war um, that I often raise this objection. Um, you may hear me say um, the temptation of modernism is to eventually begin with the supposition, did God really say? That is always the base assumption. Is what God is saying truthful? Um, that is a dangerous question to ask when we're echoing um, the words of Satan himself in the garden. Um, however, when challenges of the doctrine of Scripture arise, whether they're from the inside or outside, um, whether the inside or outside of the visible church or from pastors, other leaders must be ready to defend sound doctrine and equip others to do the same. If we uh, let our guard down, we will invite disaster uh, and the eventual doctrinal and moral drift. And to be clear, there's only one trajectory that we drift, and it's always away from biblical faithfulness. It's never to it. Um, but that's all I have for you, I suppose, on that. What are any questions we want to deal with or just uh, comments you want to make on anything? That's a lot there, but um, I think this is the most important discussion we can have on many days is the the veracity of the truthfulness of Scripture, the reliability of the manuscripts we have, and the confidence we can have in knowing that this is what God has said, and we're, what we're conforming to is the truth. Why are people disputing that it's true? I mean, there, I think there could be many reasons for it, but uh, if you start with the assumption, like they did in the Enlightenment, that um, the only thing that you can know is something that you can reason toward, um, that will leave you, I think, with a, a small understanding of God's universe. Um, but if I wanted to uh, uh, apply motive, there would be manif- many, many reasons why to assume it's not true. Moral accountability... Um, is probably the first one. Um, if there's there's no uh, such thing as absolute truth, and there's no absolute uh, morality, and definitely no justice, then whatever passions I'm guided by, are, there's no such thing as morally wrong or uh, morally correct. Um, therefore, I can do whatever I want. I am I am autonomous. I am the what's the poem now. I'm trying to remember how it phrases it. Essentially, like, I'm the captain of my own soul. Yep. 
in many of the current iterations of this start with a reluctance or a desire not to believe what the scriptures say because it's hard to wrestle with or has ramifications that people don't like. And they begin holding on to positions that they want it to say and then eventually shift their doctrine of scripture for their, their doctrine of scripture to say what they want it to be. I don't like when the Bible says this because I don't think that's true and it doesn't resonate with my feelings in my heart. And they hold that for a time period. And then weeks, months, years later, it becomes, I no longer believe that the scriptures are trustworthy at all. Um, So it, it starts often with a denial of the authority of scripture. And then it leads to a denial of the trustworthiness of Scripture. They don't like what it says, but they don't want to do it. And I think at the heart of the matter is the Holy Spirit convicts some of us of sin. And when we feel uncomfortable to that conviction, we either rationalize it or accept it. And often if we rationalize it, then we have to take it to its full extent of, of rationalizing because we feel that conviction and we don't want to face that conviction or the, do that change of what it means for it to do. And so we can, we can rationalize anything. Yeah. I'm tempted to share one of the uh, more unsettling quotes from the reading that I've been doing in preparation for the transgenderism stuff. Um, and it's based off a queer theology book called uh, radical love, um, where taken to its fullest extent, I think infused with um, violent rebellion against God, you can arrive at such conclusions as the same as Kittredge Cherry does, who is a lesbian writer and metropolitan community church minister uh, who has portrayed Jesus Christ as a bisexual transgender person who has sexual relations uh, relationships with the Apostle John Mary Magdalene, as well as a pan-gendered, omni-erotic Holy Spirit in her novel, Jesus in Love. How in the world would you arrive at that if you thought that the scriptures were true? Um, It gets much worse than that and far more explicit, not uh, a few sentences later, getting into all manner of debauchery and heinous evil that is being attributed to the Godhead even sexual relations amongst the persons of the Trinity. Um, this is a person, this is just an, another example of how much Satan hates God and the depths that he will go to to deceive people. And the first step towards uh, such degeneracy is a denial of the truth of Scripture. That is absolutely congruent with an untrustworthy, uh, subjective scripture. Yeah. Not to bring us all the way down. <laughs> Scriptures are true, so you don't have to abide by such things. And actually, people can be called out of that and redeemed from it. Um, but yeah, this is, I think, the topic of the day because it will, it will always be the referent 
for both uh, truth uh, and practice, um, not just in the church, but in our, in our lives individually as well. Yep. Sure. So I'm thinking about kind of the differences between this grammatical historical method and the historical critical method. Yeah. So what I'm trying to summarize in my mind, I'm thinking, so the grammatical historical starts with the assumption that God's word is true. Uh, sometimes it's they take the, the content of the text seriously, whereas the historical critical method only cares about the historical situation from which it came. Yeah, so there's um, there's obviously some differences where you'll have guys who start with the assumption that the scripture is not true and engage in it in the um, in the verbal, but there's also guys who do believe that it is true who will also use it. And that's partly how we've arrived at our current uh, hermeneutical methodology is incorporating some of this. Let's take the literary form seriously. Let's take how the original audience would deal with it seriously in route to uh, accurate application. Um, yeah, so that's the main difference to me is they'll take the content seriously of the text, not just the historical situation from which it came. Um, the previous guys, like Wilhausen, uh, would say it is irrelevant what the text says. Um, the only way you can derive any meaning from it is how it was produced, um, essentially. So that's how the, they can come around to say, um, I'll tell you what, archaeology has not been kind to Wilhausen in the past 50 years um, because uh, many of the assumptions of him uh, and the, the four-document hypothesis are getting frustrated by uh, further evidences of older and older manuscripts. It's e- it's easy to claim, for example, one of the worst ones for him probably was the book of Isaiah. Um, before Qumran, before we found the scroll, uh, we only had much more recent copies and in partials of the book of Isaiah. And after Qumran, we have nearly an entire completed scroll of Isaiah that is almost a thousand years older than anything they had before then. So right away, that puts in tension a bit. Oh, well, the prophecies that he told came true because they're talking about it after the fact, and you have multiple writers coming along and and piecemealing it together. Um, But, yeah, that's just an interesting fact from which you can uh, look at a facsimile at the Bible Museum. The big long boy they have over there is Isaiah. Okay, any more questions about? Because um, some of those are so close in what they are. Um, we're really dealing with a few degrees um, either way on how these guys are trying to put together these ideas and make them congruent. All right, if nothing else, then uh, thank you again for being here. I'll uh, pray for us, and then we can head out. Um, Father, uh, thank you for these people. Um, thank you for this time. Um, thank, I'm thankful that uh, I can come to you um, knowing that your word is true, uh, knowing that uh, when your word says that you sent your son to live the life I couldn't live and die the death I deserve, and be raised again, that through faith in him, I can have eternal life with you, that I can know that's true. 
Um, I pray that you continue to open our minds um, to understand your inspired word, uh, continue to open our hearts uh, to receive your inspired word, um, and continue to love you in thought and word and deed. Um, I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.